Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show with your featured host, Shah McCain, a forensics counselor, psychic, writer, artist, modern day Christian mystic, and UFO experiencer. Shah introduced guests who are experts on all aspects of the paranormal and the sacred. The Paranormal and the Sacred Radio Show has been featured on Blog Talk Radio as Staff Pick. And now for your host, Shaw McCain. Hello, everybody. This is Shaw McCain talking to you live from Southern California, where we've had two days of cooler weather. I wouldn't say it was fall-like, but I guess it is actually getting into the fall weather. I noticed some people have pumpkins out there and uh, starting to put up the skeletons and all of that. We do try to celebrate it. I know uh, back east, you know, you guys got it really going on with the beautiful uh, fall uh, leaves and everything, you know, which I do miss. Uh, and I really am so excited about the guest tonight, Arlen Schumer, award-winning illustrator and pop culture commentator. He's an award-winning comic book style illustrator for the advertising and editorial markets and a member of the Society of Illustrator and author designer of coffee table art books, including Visions from the Twilight Zone and the Silver Age of Comic Book Art, which won an independent book publisher's award for the best popular culture book. He's also a recognized expert on American pop culture, Especially the legendary TV series at Twilight Zone, oh my God, our favorite, and the music of Briggs Springsteen, the boss, and presenting his visual lectures on these and other subjects at major universities and cultural institutions across the country and around the world. And I'm going to get him on. We have him here, Arlen. Okay. Mr. Arlen. Hold on one second, please. I have a a little glitch here. I, I just totally got through talking to him about this. Oh. Arlen. I'm here. Thank you. We're live. I just got Are through we back? telling okay. you. <clears throat> yes, I just got through telling you about a little thing that happens. And, you know, it just did it to me right in the middle, middle of me trying to get you on the show. So welcome aboard, mister. Well, thanks for having me on, Char. And thanks for that uh, description of me. Like I said, boy, I'd like to meet that guy. He sounds like he's had a fabulous career. <laughs> He has, and you know, I was I was looking at your books. Uh, fabulous, rich color, amusing. Uh, you're talking about my book, The really, Silver Age of Comic Book Art. Is that the book yes, you're talking about? Yeah. Yes, I, I really I got a a lot out of it, and and there was a quote in there that that kind of reminded me of a bunch of stuff. Uh, It was Bitco created a concept of mysticism and interdimensional travel, which had never been seen in comics before. It was a quote you had by Gil Kane in 1969, and that's what it's all about. I think we all 
you know, cut our teeth on comic books. Well, and, uh, you know, that's how. Go ahead. I, I, absolutely. You know, you bring that quote up. Uh, Ditko, who created Doctor Strange and draw and drew those other dimensional worlds that were uniquely his. Um, they were influenced, obviously. He was an artist living in New York and America. And even though he's a comic artist, he was aware of what was happening in the world. So he was influenced by Dolly and surrealism that preceded him. But Ditko's Doctor Strange worlds ended up influencing years later in the 60s the entire psychedelic San Francisco school of psychedelic poster art. Every one of those artists to a man credited Ditko and Doctor Strange for influencing that's pre-drugs. You know what I mean? Yeah. Pre, Pre-LSD. Yeah. Ditko was doing Doctor Strange. But it, it, Tom Wolfe, the great uh, writer, one of my favorite writers, passed away about a couple of years ago, I think. You know, he wrote the best documentation of the 60s, the, the, how psychedelia started in that book, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. I don't know if you've ever read it, but if you've never read it, yes. if you want to know I did, how psychedelia back in the day. Is, yeah, well, for anybody listening in, if you want to know how what we call the 60s got started in terms of that whole psychedelic aspect of it, it started with one guy, Ken Kesey, the great writer, who wrote, you know, One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest, amongst other things. And Tom Wolfe ended up writing a book about it. And in the book, he talks about how when Ken Kesey and his merry pranksters who were driving across America in 1964 when LSD was still legal, and they were dousing America all along the way on free LSD. And by the way, that that bus, which was called Further, F-U-R-T-H-U-R, the magic bus, that was what influenced years later McCartney to do Magical Mystery Tour. It all comes from Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters bus. But I'm connecting this to Doctor Strange, believe it or not. Tom Wolfe in the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test writes that Ken Kesey was holed up in the back of the bus, back of the bus reading Ditko's Doctor Strange and that the bus was festooned not only with psychedelic colors and painted everything, but <laughs> images of Doctor Strange and the other Marvel Comics characters because they were considered the hipper counterculture characters versus Superman and Batman and the, the establishment DC Comics characters. So, so the influence of Doctor Strange on psychedelia in the 60s is totally documented thanks to Tom Wolfe and Ken Kesey. I, I'm just so uh, fascinated because you're taking me back to a time where I was, uh, you know, everybody starts out in comics, but yep. um, I actually, well, at that, but, that yeah. period in the 60s, you know, I was, all, you know, I did art and I was into psychedelic art. And um, all I wanted to do was do album covers or do – I loved graphic arts. I actually did, did get a graphic arts degree. I followed my dream. Um, so did I. You, where, where, did you, you, where, did you, where did you get your degree? 
I'm over here in California. I got mine in Rhode Island School of Design. How awesome. Well, I didn't know what kind of degree I got until I got it. So I got it in graphic design, and I went, I don't remember getting that degree. I thought I got something else. Boy, I want, I'll, I'll have what you That's pretty bad. I want some of those drugs. You can't I remember? I'm shocked. That's the cliche about the 60s. They say if you, you can remember it. the 60s, that means you, you weren't, weren't there. You, you weren't, <laughs> you there. weren't there. Yeah. <laughs> Well, when you started talking about the Magic Bus, I remember that song just started coming into my mind. Magic Bus. Yeah, who did that? Oh, that's oh, who, the Magic Bus. Yeah. Yes. I, I want it, I want it. Anyway, so it's uh, it, you brought me back of, I think I still have drawings from those that era. I actually think I have a draw, self-portrait of me and on being on what was in my mind. It looks like a girl on acid trip. You know, and uh, I have some drawings I'd love, from back I'd love then. to see it. You should post it. I, I'm really going to have to find it because I know I do have it. It's in, in the closet. So yeah. uh, I, it just was the things that were on my mind back then. And I, I never could tolerate any psychedelics. So I'm not I'm not one of those. I, it, I was scared. So I well, was drinking wine. But did you wine ever do it? Did you ever try? Did you ever try? No. Acid? I couldn't I even smoke. I couldn't even smoke pot. Are you kidding I can't, me? What kind of, I have. What kind of a there's something wrong with me. Were you? Well, it, I was. They thought I was a narc. <laughs> are you serious? Because I went to the Levins and all that. Because I took off like everybody else did. So I actually took off when I was 15, and I spent a, a month on the road. I was hitchhiking to San Francisco, but I actually went the wrong direction and ended up in Newport Beach. I don't. You, I, you I didn't mean make you it took to that Francisco. left turn in Albuquerque? Yes, actually, that I turned thirteen in Albuquerque, so I was traveling even then. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> so I didn't get to hate uh, hate Asbury till I was forty. Yeah, but forget about all that. How did you miss not smoking pot or dropping acid? Okay. Okay, because I tried pot, right? And I yeah. had a weird paranoia. So I, I didn't use pot because of the, that reason. So I realized that acid is even worse, so I never took it. And people tried to give it to me all the time. Because back then they thought they would they would spike your drink and well, it's fun. give you it's, on, it's, like a free ride. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I didn't let them do that to yeah, me. Yeah, acid is too – well uh, – Listen, back then, you know, people did it and didn't really know the extent of it. But whatever. The point is, is yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing no, about about psychedelics is that it's kind of like this laser beam of perception. And you kind of have to be in control of it. If you allow mm-hmm. it to control you and to turn it inward instead of outward, then it yeah, her, yeah, they, we they all, said all. We all listen. Yeah. We all have insecurities. We all yeah. battle the negative sides of ourselves. It's a lifelong struggle. It's the essential yin yang, good and evil. You know, God and the devil duality within all of us. So when you do do psychedelics, whether it's light psychedelics, which marijuana is like a low level psychedelic, 
or an intense one like acid, that it's, like I said, from my point of view, they're like laser beams of perception. Imagine like Doctor Strange, you know, when the beam comes out from the eye of Agamotto. You know, it's kind of like yeah. that. And if you, if you keep it as an external laser beam focusing on, your, the, on the external world, then that's what's called a good trip. I mean, I remember I dropped acid the day after I graduated from RISD, and I, a beautiful summer day on the beach. You know, they don't call Rhode Island the Ocean State for nothing. I'm, I'm sitting on the beach in the lotus position looking out on the horizon of the ocean with all the metaphors of my life in front of me, the perfect blue sky, the perfect sand, and the acid is kicking in. And if you think about that laser beam of perception and the physical environment I put myself in on purpose, the whole idea was, hey, let's drop acid and go to the beach. We just graduated. Let's celebrate. So, you know, you have to design your experience. So there I was on the beach and that laser beam of perception, it's hard to describe to people that have never done it. And by the way, Tom Wolfe in the book Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, mm-hmm. he goes on a multiple-page description of an acid trip. But in real life, in true journalistic fashion, Tom Wolfe never dropped acid. But by being the excellent journalist he was and through the interviews he did with Ken Kesey and everybody else at the time, he was able to verbally describe an acid trip in the book that if you've done acid, like that's the best description of an acid trip. And the guy never actually dropped acid. Well, that's what I was going to say next is that since I was a little kid, I experienced other uh, rather, I don't know what, how, to, how to say this, but rather odd, weird, well, experience, uh, interdimensional number, travel, out of so body has experiences. Everybody, even so, if, right. so I didn't want to do, I didn't need to do acid. So I was, I was yeah, there. But, so but, I, but, 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 this is. This is a real also kind of metaphor for how you view life, whether you take risks, whether you try new things, whether you experience things and then make up your own mind versus just what people tell you. Just to finish my acid trip on the beach about the laser beam of perception is that imagine you can – when people describe an acid trip, I'll never forget you immediately – feel this intense connectedness between all the things you're experiencing. So think about the blue sky, the horizon, the ocean, the sand, where I'm sitting. I remember, and remember, this is 40 years ago that I'm recounting Mm -hmm. this, but I remember it like it was yesterday because that's how intensely incredible and beautiful it was. And I'll never forget, Char, I said to myself when I was feeling, like I felt like I was part of this Mobius strip of existence and reality. And, and you know, people, scientists, both, you know, wise men, mystic, they've all described this. When they describe how the 
the earth is connected to the universe and, you know, we're all part of this energy field and blah, blah, blah. But I was actually, because of the acid, I was actually feeling that, not just intellectually reading it or reading about it in a book or an article. I was feeling those descriptions. And Char, I said to myself in my mind, I have never felt more truly alive than I feel at this very moment. Now think wow. about that, Char. Yeah. For me to be able to say that and remember it 40 years later, that is, and that is what changed the world and changed America and created the counterculture. Now the bad trip, and this gets back to your paranoia, the bad yeah. trip, is when instead of being kind of in control of your – and when I say in control, I use the word control with quotes around it. Instead of trying to guide the laser beam like a, like a tugboat would kind of guide a giant you know, uh, steamship coming into a harbor or leaving the harbor, you've got to gently push that psychedelic energy externally because if you don't – and it then turns around and focuses inward. Now, many of us can handle that inward experience where you go through that, in a, not necessarily dark night of the soul, but you've got to be ready for that laser beam. Remember, the same energy that made me feel I was connected to the earth and the youth. And by the way, I'm not an ecologist. I, you know, I know nothing about nature. I'm a total media child, artificial environment comics, pop culture. I could care less about nature. So for me to feel those things, you know what I mean, Char? Mm-hmm. But if, well, if you allow do, that laser I... beam to focus inward and you're not prepared to like deal with yourself on a radical reality level of like facing both your good sides and your bad sides, or your negatives, or the things you don't like about yourself. You know, I I had bad enamel. I have bad teeth. I've got, uh, you know, what do you call it? Implants now on my top. I always had bad teeth. I never took care of them when I was a kid, and I paid the price for it. But I had so I inherited soft enamel. My brother got the good enamel, and his teeth have never had a cavity in his life. Now, if I were dropping acid and I started to focus on my teeth and how I have bad teeth and, and then punishing myself because I didn't take care of my teeth when I was a kid, with the addition of acid, why do you think Art Linklater's daughter jumped out the window when she was on acid? <laughs> yeah, I remember. She's the daughter of Art Linklater. I mean, I'm making a joke I know, about she jumped out the experience. window. But my point is a bad trip is when – People who are not really ready for the intensity of psychedelics like acid, and instead of tugboating that laser beam externally, you focus it internally, and then you can't handle yourself. You can't deal with yourself because you've, you've let it get the worst of you. You follow me? Of course, because I saw it happen. I mean, I was there. Everybody right. was doing it. But so that I doesn't have necessarily it. mean, Char, it would have happened to you. But again, you know, like I said, I remember before I dropped acid for the first time, 
I read up on it, not just for the electric Kool-Aid acid test, but I remember like I was as prepared as a 21-year-old could be at the time, you know, so that I kind of, you know, and I was, a, and I consider myself as an artist, a bit of an adventurer, like in terms of trying mm-hmm. new experiences. Now, I would never, you know, shoot heroin. I've never done anything like that, but I'd like to think I'll try it once and then, you know, evaluate it on my own. Um, but all I, I've ever I really done is what... smoke pot. I mean, I'm still, I still smoke pot. I mean, but, you know, that's really all I've ever done. But I've tried mushrooms. I've tried acid. And, but I've never done quaaludes or pills but or did things you like ever, that. But did you ever lick a frog? No. No, Good. that would gross me out. Because the frog, frog yeah, I know that was a big, were whole other breed. I always thought that was an urban legend. Was that a real thing? No, it's not. I saw him do it. So, because uh, I, <laughs> I told you, well, what do you I, mean? I no, had it's that not. It, it was real. You're saying it was real. Then people There's were people doing that. There's people that actually were disgusting. They would. This one guy, that I'll call him the frog licker. He had a tank with these frogs. So he showed me because everybody was always trying to turn me on to psychedelics. So they said, you know, I'm only 15, okay? So I didn't tell most of the people that, that I'm only 15. And I really, you know, I'm not prepared for anything. I didn't even know what a joint was. I didn't know what it was. I thought it was, the people were you talking were, about. You were this poor, innocent waif. I was like stupid. Like Candide. You were, you were, you were, you were let loose in a. You're like uh, like a Robert Crumb drawing of a '60s girl. <laughs> very That's much you so. Were. And I was yeah. very much into the peace, love, and art, and the the hippie beat, the loving. Nothing wrong with well, everybody was into that. I was everybody into all was that into music and uh, the lovins. I attended lovins and you know shared incense but through all or whatever. Of this, you never, but through all of that, no. you never smoked pot. Yes, I I did. And I had a bad reaction. I'm telling you, I'm allergic. So, so what happened with the frog licking incident is the guy picks up this frog out of the tank and he licks it. And the guy I noticed had a, like a yellow. He had like jaundice or something. You know what I mean? But but I kind of see things anyway. You know what I mean? I see things that that other people don't see. So I've had a very I, peculiar childhood. I hope you're not going to say I upbringing. see dead people. I do see like, dead people, but oh, like the to me, men. they're not dead. They're alive. So sometimes I get tricked. You know, I can be talking to them, and they're really not here, but they are, or whatever. I don't want to get into that because I'm very interested in your, well, you call your show, artwork. You call your I, I show envy that... you. Why do you envy me? Because your choice of color of the way you work your magic. I mean, I just was enthralled, and I thank you so much for sending me uh, those files because they look gorgeous, you know, and I envy that rich color that you did it. You have your book, and I love that. I really do. Well, thank you so much for those kind kudos, those but compliments. But I mean it. I, I thought, well, they were filling my eyes. It was like being you and also you. with a graphic background. I take that as a very high compliment. Was there well, yeah, specific, because it's like an acid trip, really. Pieces, Looking at your stuff. Any specific, <laughs> any specific pieces stand out? 
Yes. I noticed you put some images up on the uh, internet, uh, the page, um, you know, of the radio show. So are those, those look like images you'd have found either on my site or on, did you yeah, Google I did. me or something? I was, yeah, I Googled and I was seeking yeah. you out and I wanted to put a bunch of stuff up there because when people are listening and watching, they have like a little show. Right. So, yeah, so I want to encourage everyone to get it's funny, your you're, books. You're probably the first person who's ever complimented my art specifically about the color. I'm just curious, like, because I've never – I mean, I, really? Know, well, there's well, like comics. a – okay, this is what I saw, the stretch guy. So, I mean, all of it's beautiful. But then the stretch guy, he, he you did him in this gorgeous – uh, purple or fuchsia or whatever. Wait, wait, slow down. Stre- the stretch guy. He, you, his, I don't know he what stretches is. from one cartoon panel to the next, and that slash of color was just so okay, attractive. Okay, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Slow down. I, I'm trying to think of the piece you're trying to describe. What What is the stretch? What are you well, describing? Well, he has his long legs sticking out to the next panel. Of one from one panel of you know one little image to the cartoon to the next. Is that a a spread from my book? I don't know what image you're describing. Well, I loved it all. I I just have Uh, to say that it's. Yeah, but uh, I think I think you're describing. You might be describing a bit of historical comic art in one of my uh, things that I've designed versus my own illustration. No, I love your illustrations, really. Um, okay. I, I'm, I, it's very what, – what you did was you inspired me, and you gave me that, that little – somehow, you know, sometimes you need a little pickup, you know what I mean, to remind yourself who you are, and that's what well, that's nice your stuff did for me. Wow. I you know. know that's all, I think that's all any artist can ever hope their art do, whether it's uh, music, whether it's a plastic art, sculpture, painting, to know that your art actually inspired and moved somebody and made them feel something. I mean, that's really the goal of anything, whether you write a book or an article or you paint or you draw, you want people to look at it and feel something, anything, any kind of reaction, really. And when it's a positive um, reaction like you just, you know, verbalized, um, like I said, that's a beautiful compliment because that's the best thing I could ever hope my art to do. You know, one of the quotes I always identify with when somebody compliments my work, like online, I usually post back a line from the Elton John song, Your Song, his first hit from 1970 that broke him, that ballad. And the lyrics are by his partner, Bernie Taupin. And there's a line that goes, it's after he's describing um, his lover's eyes. And he goes, um, it's for people like you that keep it turned on, meaning keep the light. I love that phrase. Oh, yeah. You know, um, let me think if I so excuse me for getting it's these things I do. It seems I've forgotten if they're green mm-hmm. or they're blue. Or the blue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, the thing is, what anyway, yours are the sweetest. You are the sweetest. Yeah, 
Right, but when does he say um, um, it's for people like you that keep it turned on? Turned on. Yeah. What's the line, what's the line before that? Um, oh, so anyway, I should call up the lyric. Anyway, yeah. the point is, is I always quote the line. It's for people like you that keep it turned on. Meaning, for you to give me that reaction, that's exactly why we do what we do. Or it's why I do what I do is for people like you that are going to receive it and feel something positive, feel something inspiring. You know, I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. You mentioned Bruce Springsteen in my Mm -hmm. in my resume bio. You know, he just released this new album today and there have been all these Bruce Springsteen events and you know, I was art director of his first fan magazine when I was at Rhode Island School of Design. That's how far back I go with Bruce and me being a fan of his. But, um, you know, that's exactly what his art has done for me and obviously a legion of fans. But back then, he was a large cult. You know, everything that he turned into, and now he's like the rock and roll poet laureate of America – I mean, Dylan is like the kind of king in, you know, in residence. But you know, Bruce is mm-hmm. to me. I love I love Bob Dylan, and he'll always be you know the great Bob Dylan. But um, to me, Bruce has gone beyond Dylan. In, in well, so Dylan's is more of a troubadour to me. He's like a troubadour. Listen, I wish when, Bruce would tour like the way Dylan used. You know, when people were touring yeah. the never-ending tour, but. You know, that's Dylan. Um, but, yeah, I mean, listen, Dylan, like I said, not to take anything away from Bob Dylan, but it's the same way I feel about Elvis Presley. I mean, yeah, Elvis Presley, they call him the king, but to me, Bruce is the king. You know, Elvis squandered his career. Yeah, he had the 50s. The, you know, he was the first white boy to rock, and I get it, And you know, but I've never been a big fan of Elvis. He never wrote his own songs, you know. He was like another Frank Sinatra to me. Um, rock and roll was all about real feeling, real emotion at its best. And rock and roll became people writing their own songs. You know, I was a big Elton John fan before I heard Bruce. And I'll never forget, as much of an Elton John fan as I was in the early 70s, the minute I heard the song Born to Run come over the radio when I was 17 yeah. years old, and yeah. at the time I was the biggest Elton John fan there could be. And that's because, and I'll always blame the New York radio stations, they didn't play Bruce's first two albums. You would think, really. Bruce, you know, coming out of New Jersey, right? No. Bruce was big in Philly, he was big in Boston, and he was big in Cleveland, but right. not. New York or Northern New Jersey. Why? The radio stations were pissed off by Bruce's first manager's very aggressive and what they thought were obnoxious um, promotional efforts to get them to play the first two albums. And consequently, they didn't. So while cities like Philly and Boston, pre-born to run, were, were, were hotbeds of Bruce's foundation, I'm sitting in northern New Jersey. I never heard Bruce's first two albums. And I was at the same time, subsequently, a big Elton John fan 
because he was playing something well, close to John, rock and roll. Well, Yellow Brick Road album, for for example, brilliant. Even I even remember the artwork. I can see it right now. Alan and, Aldridge. Wow. Who did who did um who uh who did the Beatles illustrated lyrics? Yeah. And that's what got Elton John to get him to do. Um, oh no, Alan Aldridge was Captain Fantastic. The album cover, the the artwork for Goodbye Elbert Road was not Alan Aldridge. Um, boy, now it's escaping me. Was it Richard Amsel or somebody like that? No. Or there were no. You know what? They did use Alan Aldridge on some of the interior. Remember the lyrics, yeah. the little illustrations that went with each song? Okay, so, so here's the perfect analogy. Elton John was playing, forget about Bruce right now, in the early 70s when soft rock was in and singer-songwriter James Taylor, you know, the whole L.A. singer-songwriter establishment of the early 70s. The only one playing real rock and roll, you know, Cat Stevens was big and that whole style of music, which I didn't like because I was a child of the Beatles and 60s AM transistor radio, Motown, rock and roll. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't mm-hmm. like – I hated the early 70s, but I discovered Elton John. Instead of discovering Bruce Springsteen, thanks to the New York radio stations, I discovered Elton John, and I liked him because at least in addition to all those ballads, he also played a lot of what I would – Consider great rock and roll. Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, Elderberry Wine. And I loved Elton John. But then one day in the summer of 75, I turned 17. I'm learning how to drive. And I'm driving my mother's um, 74 Duster, the Plymouth Duster. <laughs> and it had an AM FM radio. And I'll never forget this song comes on. I ended up writing an essay about this that I'll have to send you. Um, yeah, I'd love to read it. The, the, the song came on, and it was like nothing I had ever heard before, and yet elements of it sounded incredibly familiar and almost like classic. And when I mean classic, I'm 17, but I remembered the Four Seasons, and that's what I grew up on, AM radio and the Beatles and stuff, so the opening drum roll and then and then that guitar the and it sounded like the James Bond and then the you know and I was a kid I used to play the saxophone when I was in elementary school I heard this sax solo on this song that I never like I never heard an exciting sax solo sound like that yeah but out of all those things what blew my mind was the singer sounded like he was singing like his life depended on it. He was singing with a commitment. Now, I knew Elton John intellectually did not write those lyrics. I knew it was Bernie Taupin, and he wrote the Mm -hmm. lyrics, gave them to Elton John, and Elton John would come up with music and fit the lyrics to the music. So I knew, as much as I loved Elton John... I knew intellectually he wasn't singing his own lyrics, which again, to me, was a big part of what rock and roll was about. That's what the Beatles were about. That's yeah, how that's they right. made their careers. And that's what everybody followed. So, so to me, 
there was always something a little lacking about Elton John in terms of, you know, when you're not singing your own, yeah, a great singer, you know, they always talk about Frank Sinatra, oh, they make it their own, please. You know, there's not, nothing will replace a singer who's singing words that he wrote himself. No. Well, absolutely this not. This singer, as I'm, driving my mother's, yeah, as I'm driving my mother's 74 Duster in Fairlawn, New Jersey, I just turned 17 and got my license. So I'm listening to this song through my, you know, AM, FM radio, car radio, and it's blowing my mind my 17-year-old mind. And the commitment from the singer, the urgency in his vocal, I, I had never heard anybody sing with that kind of commitment. That's the only word I can use to describe it. And when the well, song was over... he's in it, and it's, especially that song is powerful, really, because well, it really wants listen, you to get to out run, there and drive, like I said, I run. Right. I wrote a whole essay about I, – I, I took the song apart and put it back together again in this essay. I could, we could spend the rest of this radio show just discussing why the song Born to Run is not only his greatest song. It's the theme song of rock and roll itself. I totally agree. Because it makes it you want to get over, out there on the road. You know? well, <laughs> just... well, but that's part of, again, the escapism, that feeling yeah. of the open, you know, that people describe the cinematic quality. Yeah. I had, when the song was over, I couldn't, you know, he ends it with those, with those woes. It reminded me of Frankie Valley at the end of every Four Seasons song that I loved yeah. as a kid. You know, the first song I remember hearing on the transistor radio I was six years old in summer camp, and I heard the Four Seasons song, Big Girls Don't Cry, Yeah, which was their second hit. And I'm not even six. I'm five and a half years old. Maybe, no. Yeah, so, yeah I was five years old in summer camp. And I'm, I thought the lyrics were big girl, small fry. Because, you know, when you're a kid, <laughs> the girls are taller than the boys. Yeah, and, you know the lyrics, That's but you know how. Listen, we've been misinterpreting rock and roll lyrics for forever. As long as rock and roll has been around, <laughs> right? But yeah, but but I had to. So when the song ended with this guy with this commitment doing these woes at the end, in almost an homage to Frankie Valley, which every great Four Seasons song ended with those Frankie Valley falsetto woes. And I had to pull over, Shard, to the side of the road in Fairlawn, New Jersey, when the song was over, because I was shaking my head in disbelief. I couldn't believe what I had just heard. It sounded like a little bit of everything I ever loved about rock and roll since I was a kid. It had the guitar twang of the James Bond. It, 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 it had... You know, the bells in the background, like those Phil Spector songs I used to love, that, that wall of sound. Yeah. And then, you know, and then that was it. I went from being an Elton John super fan, literally four minutes and 30 seconds after Born to Run ended, 
I became the greatest Bruce Springsteen fan. And I still love well, my early certainly, songs. But I love know, it, but you know, Bruce Springsteen is still alive, still vibrant. Well, uh, he just he's put out actually, a new album today. I know. It's he's he's amazing and he looks good. And listen, uh, he he, did, he does have he's a role model because he has, he does have a book. And listen, out. I, I haven't read it yet. What I what I started I started this whole tangent because I said that we when he was a large cult, we who loved him back then, everything that he's become the whole born USA thing. Now he's this elder statesman. You know, Obama gave him the presidential medal. You know, to me, Bruce is the real president of the United States. You know, he's amazing. He makes you glad to be American. I mean, really, he's a a good example. We saw that in him. Yes. In the 1970s, we we sensed this thing about him that he was going to be bigger than. Then we were like we knew. Listen, this is why his the guy that became his manager and producer, he used to be the head writer of Rolling Stone in 1974. Oh, yeah. John Landau, the leading critic of rock and roll, walks into Harvard Square Theater because this guy Bruce Springsteen that he had heard about was opening up for Bonnie Raitt, and Bonnie Raitt gave him. And his 90 minutes to do his entire act because she loved him. And oh, yeah. this was no opening act. She let him do his whole show as the opening act. 90 minutes. And John Amazing. Landau sees this show in which, by the way, May 9th, 1974, that's the show Bruce debuts the song Born to Run live at that show. That John Landau there must sees. there must be a recording of that. I mean, there must be on Believe YouTube. Believe it or not, somewhere. you ready for this? Everything's what? been bootlegged. Nobody has a tape of that particular show. What the heck? It's there. You know, listen. Well, I'm a Bruce fan. Uh, that's like the holy grail. Incredible yeah. photographs of that show were just published in a beautiful coffee table book by Barry Schneier, the photographer. He was there and took incredible photos and just published a coffee table art book uh, with those photos. But no, no audio tape or audience tape of that particular show exists. So the debut of Born to Run, the show that Landau saw. Remember I told you I had to pull over to the side of the road to collect my thoughts? I was 17. Landau's 27. And he went home in a daze that night. He was living in Boston, and he was writing also for the Boston version of the Village Voice called The Real Paper. And he ends up writing a column that was not just a column. It went on for pages. And it was called Growing Up Young with Rock and Roll. And... He doesn't mention Bruce Springsteen until the last three column inches. For pages, he's just recounting his personal history with music, with rock and roll. From when he was a kid to how he became an editor at Rolling Stone, 
and how he became the leading critic. This went on for pages. And then you get to the last, like I said, six inches of column space. And he talked about how, you know, by the early 70s, he became disillusioned with rock, like a lot of critics did after the deaths of, you know, Altamont and, and Jimi Hendrix and, Jack, you know, there was this, and that's why horrible. the singer-songwriter, that's why soft rock, it was after the, it was like the hangover from the 60s, after all the Kent State murders and after all the violence. Of Jim Morrison. War, the weatherman, you know, the counterculture was exhausted, beaten down. Nixon murdered us and, you know. And in the early 70s with soft rock were the recovery, Take It Easy by the Eagles. It was all about, hey, the 60s were rough, just relax, mellow out, you know, smoke a joint, yeah. you know, <laughs> and just mellow out. So, so Landau, as a, as a child of rock and roll, he, like many other critics, were disillusioned. That's why there was this new Dylan thing. Everybody was hoping for a new Dylan for the 70s. Everybody, you know, when they said Bruce Springsteen was a creation of the rock critics at the time in the early 70s was because when critics like Landau discovered Bruce, he was the answer to their dreams. It was like, here's a guy that's got the spirit of the 60s, but he's not a drugged out rock guy. He's not playing Mm -hmm. with his back to the audience with a cigarette dangling from his lips. He's not wearing makeup and effeminate like Elton John or prancing around the stage like Mick Jagger, you know? <laughs> and Bruce was pretty popular. You know what? It's so weird is that, you know, of course I love the Stones music. I could never stand looking at Mick Jagger. <laughs> okay, well, this is what I'm saying. For many of us and my generation, my generation is the generation that was too young to discover Dylan. Bruce was our Dylan because yeah, we were I, too young. The only reason why I knew Dylan, Dylan is because my front. older, my stepsister, right. she had his album. See, you're lucky. So of course, I, I was lucky. Right. I had some older cousins who went to the see the Beatles at Chase Stadium, and they were my introduction oh. to rock and roll. And as a kid, thank God for them that uh, they yeah. introduced me to a lot. And um, yeah. but but. That was the thing. So Landau writes this column, and at the end he goes, but now there is somebody I can write about like I used to write about. Tonight I saw my rock and roll past flash before me, but I also saw rock and roll future, and its name is Bruce Springsteen. Yes. Now – you know what Landau did after that? He basically quit his job and joined the circus. He so <laughs> believed in Bruce that he literally quit his job at Rolling Stone as the head records review editor, the leading critic. And there is no other analog to this, Char, in the 20th century where a leading critic of an art form becomes the personal manager and producer of one of the leading proponents of that art form. I don't think you can find that parallel anywhere in the 20th century. And that's what well, makes the land Well, he fell in love, really. He fell in love he with He fell in love, he... but here's the thing. That prediction 
Not only did it come true, but Landau, you know how they say in all these self-help things, you have to project your goal, you've got to visualize it, and then you pursue it. Or you announce it to the universe, and then, you, you know, by announcing it to the universe, you then karmically make it happen, right? Landau announced to the universe, this is the future of rock and roll, this guy, Bruce Springsteen, in 1974, on May 9th, he said that. And then what did he do? He actually took action and helped make that prediction come true. Amazing. And again, the only place in the 20th century, Shaw, where you can find as bold a prediction that came true, I believe was when Joe Namath predicted the Jets would win the Super Bowl in 1969. (laughs) When they were a 16-point underdog, the biggest point spread differential in Super Bowl history to the Baltimore Colts and, and name it the day before said to the press, we're going to win. I guarantee it. And everybody laughed at him. Guess what? They won. Yeah. I love it's that. Still, forget about the, 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 the U S hockey team in 1980 beating Russia. Yeah. Okay. I get it. There will never be a greater upset than when the Jets beat the Colts in Super Bowl three. I Why? love that, yes. Because, because the year, that was the, the AFL at the time was such an underdog to the establishment NFL, kind of like the way Marvel Comics started out as the scrappy little underdog compared to DC Comics, the big establishment comic book company with the, established heroes, you know, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and then Jack Kirby and these scrappy Marvel Comics guys like Steve Ditko, you know, within 10 years, they beat DC Comics, and they've never looked back. DC has never regained its its number one status in 50 years. And um, that prediction... I believe Landau's prediction, look how that's come true. Not only did Bruce have a future, not only did he live up to that, you know, the guy had to live up first to being the new Dylan. Yeah. Then he had to live up to being, and by the way, you know how many failed new Dylans there were before Bruce? That's why people didn't want to hear about Bruce because they had heard, oh, yeah, the new Dylan, right. But Bruce is the only new Dylan who became a new Dylan. Then he had to be the future rock and roll. He had a follow-up born to run. And you know what? (laughs) Many critics and Bruce fans consider his follow-up album, Darkness in Major Town, to be even a greater masterpiece than Born to Run. Well, and plus yeah, he's and, done this whole thing with grace. You know, he's he's exactly. aging gracefully. He's he never uh, listen. He ne- speaking of drugs. Yeah, I think Bruce drank a little, but he never did drugs. He never mm-hmm. burned out. He never fell victim to all the pitfalls. Listen, to this day, people are not sure whether Dylan really had a motorcycle accident or he just had to 
drop out of the scene because of the incredible drug use he was doing. You know, there's a story where Mick Jagger meets him in 1965 at Andy Warhol's factory, and Dylan yeah. is lying on the floor, totally tripped out, and Mick Jagger is standing over him like, oh, so that's Bob Dylan? <laughs> <laughs> I remember the pictures of him at the factory, though. (laughs) Somewhere I read that. Yeah, that's in some kind of – maybe it was in Andy Warhol's biography (laughs) or something, autobiography. But um, the point is, yeah. Do you think you have any influence from Andy Warhol? Do you you feel – because I I saw a little that in some of your work. I've never been a big fan of Warhol's, um, but I totally respected him and – he is the most influential artist of the second half of the 20th century. Picasso was the most influential artist of the first half of the 20th century. Yes. But um, Andy Warhol is the most influential without a doubt. And like I said, I'm not really a big fan. I don't have any of his art hanging up. I'm not a big fan of his art, but I totally respect it. I'm more of a fan yeah, me of Lichtenstein. Because of the whole conflict thing, I, you know, I just did a webinar on Lichtenstein. Um, yeah, I was going to bring this. Let's bring this up now that you're doing the 50th anniversary of Jack Kirby's New Gods webinar. Yes. Via yes. the New York. Ad, why don't you tell every, our listeners about about this? It's Thursday. So uh, I used to do. You mentioned visual lectures. That's what I used used to call my live lectures. I was looking for a word to describe what I do other than the word lecture because the word lecture, Char, has such a negative uh, connotation. You know, it's such a pejorative like you're being lectured to. And most people think lectures are boring because for that very reason. It's usually a guy standing or a woman, whatever, with no public uh, speaking skills, you know, standing up and, you know, showing one image and it sits on the screen for 10 minutes. Well, my live presentations are the exact opposite of that. Um, as you can tell just by the way we've been talking, I can, uh, I got the gift of gab where I don't need notes. You know, I know my material and I could just talk off the top of my head. But That's the great. amount of images I show when I present live, I have an image for almost every sentence that I speak. Think about that. And I can, I I've, lectured for, I've lectured for three hours. So think about how many images I'm showing people as I'm talking. So people can go to my website, arlentrumer.com, which is linked to my YouTube channel, where you can see videos of a lot of my live presentations pre-pandemic you know, shutdown. But I was blessed and I'm lucky to say that beginning in April of this year, when the shutdown happened, I've been doing these webinars with this company out of New York City called the New York Adventure Club. They used to be a live, in-person, meetup-type organization in New York City, you know, having walking tours of historical sites and things like that. Well, (laughs) the pandemic shut that business down overnight. So the guy that was running the business was needed to find people that could do webinars but they also had to be visual because you can't just talk on a webinar. It's not like a podcast. You've got to show people images while you're talking. So I knew this great writer in New York City, the number one Frank Sinatra fan, who's also the number one 
I think he's written like 10 books on Sinatra. His name is Will Friedwald. And he's an expert in the, all that music that I don't like. That's pre-rock and roll. Like he just wrote a book on Nat King Cole and Ella Fitzgerald. And he knows that whole school of music. Um, but he came to one of my Bruce Springsteen live lectures a year ago. I went to see one of his live presentations on, on Sinatra uh, just to, you know, like I said to him, Will, show me Sinatra's greatest hits, you know. Like I'm not impressed by Sinatra, but, you know, you're the expert. So we got to know each other the last couple of years. Anyway, I think he was put in touch with the New York Adventure Club. They wanted him to do a webinar on Sinatra. And then the guy asked, Will, do you know anybody else? who's an expert on things that's also visual. Well, the minute Will heard that, he goes, you should give Arlen Schumer a call. So, Char, ever since April, the transition from my live lectures to doing webinars is easy because I'm a semi-Luddite. I mean, you know, me and technology, uh, you know, I know enough to get my work done. But um, luckily, the transition from doing a live lecture, you know, with images off my laptop, to doing a webinar, which you're just making your PowerPoint or keynote file into a PDF, and you're just showing the images while I'm talking, it was a smooth transition for me. And I've been doing them since April um, with New York Adventure Club. So if you go to their website, very easy to remember, nyadventureclub.com, you'll see their smorgasbord. They have like three webinars a day on all different things, and many of the subjects are New York centric because it's still New York Adventure Club. But every now and then, you know, you'll see something by Wilfried Wall. Like, I think he just did a webinar today on, um, oh, I can't, uh, somebody else from the Sinatra. Oh, Tony Bennett. He just did a webinar today. Oh, yeah. Bennett. You know, Tony so Bennett's every, doing in, good. In between all the, you know, Renaissance homes of New York City and, you know, the, the history of the New York City subway webinar, you'll see an Arlen Schumer pop culture thing. So, And also, if you go to my site, arlenschumer.com, I have a blog page that has all of my current events and all the proper links that you need. So that brings us – so I've done webinars on Bruce Springsteen, on conflict history, on the Twilight Zone, all of my – what I call my pop culture children – you know how you, you're not supposed to love, uh, you know, you're not supposed to play favorites. You love your children equally. You know, yeah. you, when you go to my website, you'll see there's a comic history subpage, a subpage for the Twilight Zone, one for Bruce Springsteen, one for comic history. Uh, and those are my, and I love them all equally. And depending on what the venue is, I plug myself into it. So, you know, if it's Bruce Springsteen, I can do my Bruce Springsteen projects. And when you go to each one of those subpages of my site, you'll see the works that I've done on each pop culture subject. So I've done some serious work on Bruce Springsteen's music and career. I've done serious work on the Twilight Zone, uh, books and lectures and webinars and same thing with Well, can we talk history. a little bit about the Twilight Zone? Yes. Would you mind? Okay, well, now. Well, to come back. I know I went on a tangent about well, the Jack Kirby webinar next week, but if we talk about Twilight Zone, we got to come back to Kirby. Well, go go to Kirby. Do it first, then we'll do okay, Twilight so, Zone. Okay, 
So anyway, so like I said, so I've been able to do a webinar. I just did a James Bond webinar on the first four Connery Bond films. I just finished that um, this past week. So next week on Thursday, October 29th, I will be doing a webinar on the 50th anniversary of Jack Kirby's New Gods. Now, there are many people listening that don't know, A, who Jack Kirby is, or B, don't know who the New Gods are. But do you know who both things are? No. You don't know who Jack Kirby is? Refresh my memory. Okay. This is what is is the definition of bittersweet. Because, Char, you and I'm sure a lot of people listening in, they know the creations of Jack Kirby, but they don't know his name. What if I told you the entire Marvel Comics universe that you think was created by who? Char? I, I know. The Marvel I'm, I'm Comics thinking. Cinemat- you, you, you don't know who created the Marvel Comics universe? You never heard of Stan Lee? Yes, of course. Stan Lee just passed. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Sorry about that. Do you think Stan Lee created the Marvel Comics Foundation characters? Yes. Yes. And why do you think that? Do you know why? Well, because uh, he's he's out there. You know, he's that's all we hear is Stanley. Meaning, meaning Stanley, he's Stanley. promoted. He is yeah, he's promoted, promoted exactly. As the creator because of yeah, all the cameo appearance, right? So the lay public thinks Stanley created the Marvel Comics universe. A lot of comic book people, both fans and pros alike, think Stanley created the Marvel Comics universe. Now, where do you think I'm going with this? Jack Kirby created the right, but yet you never even heard of Jack Kirby, but you've heard of Stan no. Lee, right? Yes. Okay. So, welcome to America. You know that the creators of Superman, Siegel and Schuster, sold all the rights to Superman when they got their first story published in 1938. The very first Superman story. It was ten pages. Wow. They were paid thirteen dollars a page. $130 for 10 pages of art, the, the first story of Superman printed in Action Comics number one in 1938, which became, you know, the most valuable comic book ever, kicked off an entire genre called superheroes, kicked off an entire medium called comic books, right? Yeah. In those days, it was normal business practice. And by the way, every entertainment medium is like this. Why do you think all those black bluesmen got screwed by the record companies? When you yeah. got published or when you got a record deal, it was implicit and written and inherent. When you signed the check, you signed the rights away. That $130 check paid to Siegel and Schuster for the first 10 pages of the first Superman story also included all rights to the character in perpetuity. Wow. And even though Siegel and Schuster at various times over the next couple of decades fought in the courts with their life savings and lost every court case to the point where it, by the 1960s, 
The artist was half blind living in California somewhere. The writer was working as a messenger boy, as a grown man in New York City delivering packages. Poor people. The creators of Superman. Sad. Do you know the co-creator of Batman never saw a dime from Batman and died alone, unmourned, and unloved in 1974 in a one-room apartment in New York City? Wow. Bob Kane, the creator of Batman, screwed his partner, Bill Finger. Without Bill Finger, there would be no Batman. And people like me have been fighting for Bill Finger for years, and now, because of various events that have happened and the works of one particular comic book historian, now when you see anything official put out by DC Comics or Batman, it says created by Bob Kane with Bill Finger. Not and Bill Finger, with. About a billion dollars separates the word and from the word with. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, this gets back to um, Jack Kirby. Like the creators, oh, did I mention Jack Kirby co-created Captain America in the 1940s? As well as all the Marvel Comics Foundation characters. Um, He even had a hand in creating Spider-Man, even though the Spider-Man that was eventually created by Steve Ditko bears no relation. Kirby still had a hand in it. There never would have been a Spider-Man without Kirby. But the the entire Marvel Comics universe that you think was created by Stan Lee is because of the way Stan Lee, the editor of Marvel Comics, and the, quote, writer – the way they worked at Marvel in the early 60s was that a guy like Jack Kirby, before he got to Marvel in the late 50s, he was a writer and an artist of his own complex stories. Like I said, he co-created Captain America. In the 50s, with his partner who created Captain America with him, Joe Simon, they created the entire genre of romance comics in the 50s. Jack Kirby I love that too. had a 20-year career before he got to Marvel Comics in the early 60s of where he wrote and created and drew his own stories. But when he got to Marvel with Stan Lee, Kirby would draw the stories out like silent movies on paper. They were his stories. They were his characters. And he would write in the margins of the artboards dialogue notes for Stan Lee because he would give the pages to Stan Lee. Stan Lee would then look at the story that Kirby drew like a silent movie on paper, read the little margin notes of what the characters were thinking or saying. And then according to Stan Lee himself, he said it was like filling in a crossword puzzle. Think about it. The story is drawn out in front of you with empty word balloons and empty caption boxes with notes from the artist telling you what the characters are thinking or saying. But here's what happened. When the finished comic came out, the credits on page one, it says written by Stan Lee. Art by Jack Kirby. Now to the layman or to the comic book fan, written by usually means, well, 
The writer wrote the story like traditionally at a typewriter or something and then gave it to the artist who drew it up, which, by the way, was the way the old DC Comics establishment method was. It was traditional. The writer writes what was called a full script, kind of like a screenplay. But in comic talk would be, you know, panel one, you know, Commissioner Gordon, uh, you know, turns on the bat signal. Panel two. We're in the Batcave, and Batman sees the bat signal. You know, panel three, the Batmobile rushes out of the bat. You know, you know what I'm saying, Char? Yeah. That was the traditional way comic book scripts were written. But at the Marvel style, because they were such a small company, and they were on the cheap, the publisher was Stan Lee's uncle. Oh, no nepotism at all. Mm-hmm. But the uncle was cheap. Martin Goodman, the publisher of Marvel Comics, he didn't want to hire a bunch of writers. He had his nephew, Stan Lee, said, Stan, I want you to write all the comics. There were like a dozen titles. Well, Stan Lee couldn't write traditional scripts for a dozen titles all by himself. So he came up with this idea of, you know what, I'll just discuss the basic idea of the story with the writer, with the artist. And I'll let the artist draw it up. And then I'll just fill in the word balloons like a crossword puzzle. But here's the problem, Char. In the credit box, not only does it say written by Stan Lee, which implied that he created the story and the characters, he also took writer's pay. So the artist whose story it was only got paid for the drawing, but Stan Lee got paid as both the editor and the writer. You like that? No, I don't think it's fair. It's irritating. And guess what? And decades later, because Stan Lee was the salaried company man and Kirby was the freelance employee. Now, if you followed intellectual property cases in the last couple of decades, the battle has been over whether freelancers, if they bring a, a one of their ideas to the company that's paying them, who owns the idea, the freelancer or the company? Now, traditional law mm-hmm. always said the company because mm-hmm. the company was paying the freelancer. Well, guess what? The courts have been leaning in recent decades towards the freelancer. This is why those black blues oh, good. were able to get lawyers, their estates were able to get lawyers to challenge those old contracts, which the courts are using the term onerous contracts. And they're reinstating rights to these old songs to the bluesmen's families and estates. The Jack so Kirby case, it. Kirby's family has been fighting Marvel Comics for decades. And um, about. I didn't have any years. idea about this. Well. This is why I'm a guest on your show. That's and right. You're why telling you us. You've got to come to my webinar because we haven't even talked about the new gods yet. The whole point to bring up the Marvel Comics thing is to show you and the people listening that Kirby ended up getting as badly screwed by the system that awarded Stan Lee, the company man, the salaried company man, creative ownership of the foundation characters and stories of Marvel Comics. 
And because he was the company man, the big money that owns Marvel Comics, which is Disney now, got behind their company man. And they fought the Kirby estate for ownership in the last couple of decades. And Kirby's people, just like Siegel and Schuster before him, they lost at every case because the conservative traditional law was the company owns the characters if they're paying the freelancer. But about five years ago, the Kirby court battle with Disney was coming to a head, and they were just about to get to the Supreme Court because for the first time, Shar, creative guilds in Hollywood wrote what are called amicus briefs, which are, means friends of the court saying how we stand behind Jack Kirby. We, as an organization, represent a lot of freelancers who bring ideas to these companies that end up making billions of dollars, and the freelancer gets screwed. And for a brief moment, all of us pro-Kirby historians, we couldn't wait. We really thought this time the Supreme Court was going to decide in favor of Kirby. And if it did, that meant it would open up the doors for all other freelancers who have created concepts. You know, take the, take the character Blade. You know, the Marvel Comics, Black Vampire yes. Hunter, Blade, played by Wesley Snipes 20 yes. years ago in the movies. I think they're going to reboot Blade. Um, I just read recently. Uh, they want to, you know, they're looking for more Black. In the wake of yeah, the Black I saw Panther, that character, yeah. whole, you know, they're they're, you know, more than ever they're looking for black superheroes. So they said, let's reboot Blade. Now, the guy that created Blade in Marvel, he was a Marvel Comics character. He's a writer named Marv Wolfman, but he was a freelancer. He doesn't own any of Blade. Things like that, you know. And I think it's it's awesome that you're case, doing this. So had the Kirby case gone to the Supreme Court, but here's what happened. This is, a, again, this is going back to, you know, five years ago or so. Um, the Supreme Court was going to hear it on a Monday. The previous Friday at 5 o'clock at the end of the business day, it was announced the Kirby estate had settled with Disney out of court. Wow. Nobody knows how many millions of dollars everybody's estimate could have been twenty million, eighty million, whatever. Nobody knows because it was one of those classic. They settled out of court within, uh, you know, the gag order. They they can't reveal how much they got paid. The Friday so what does this mean? The, okay, so what do you think that means? The Friday before the Monday was going to go to the Supreme Court, Disney basically made the Kirby estate an offer to settle. Now, all of us who were following the case, at first we were disappointed because we thought by settling, that means the case is not going to go to the Supreme Court. And had the Supreme Court decided in favor of the Kirbys, it would have changed the careers oh. and lives of so yeah, many Yeah, it was set a precedent that needs to be... Everybody was hoping Ugh. with these amicus briefs from Hollywood creative guilds 
everybody thought, yeah, the Kirby State lost before, but this time they're going to win. But what happened? They went for the money. Now, at the same time, we felt disappointed. Nobody could blame the Kirby State no. for settling. Let's say they did dangle $20 million in front of you. Uh, you're going to take the $20 million. Yeah. Most, you know, it's like yeah. a game show. Do you want the twenty million, or do you want to go for what's behind door number two? Every lawyer would tell you, no matter how open and shut a case looks, of course there's no guarantee you're going to win. Nobody can guarantee that the Supreme Court would have sided in favor of Kirby, but all the legal experts. And by the way, why do you think Disney settled at five o'clock on the Friday? You don't think their experts were telling them? <laughs> If you don't settle with those Kirby's and we go to the Supreme Court and we lose, you know what's going to happen? Animators are going to come out of the woodwork and say, hey, uh, the yeah. Little Mermaid's my creation and I, you know, blah, 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 blah. Okay, and here's what else I think happened. Remember I mentioned about Bill Finger and Batman? That's, that's Warner Brothers. That's DC Comics. Here's what I think happened. I bet you the Disney lawyers got a call on Friday afternoon from the DC Warner Brothers lawyers. And I think they said to them, uh, hey, you idiots, if you don't settle with the Kirby estate and you go to the Supreme Court and you lose, we're going to have to give 50% of Batman to the descendant of Bill Finger, a woman named Athena Finger. You know how much Batman is worth? Immense Sorry. amount of money. I mean, really. Yeah. Batman, Batman is, is more big, popular big, big. Than Superman. Batman yeah. is the most popular character right now, more than Superman. Okay? Well, so I bet you know, you, Char, spin-off movies, I mean, people are getting Oscars well, for playing listen, that So part. here's the thing. So here's the thing. I think the Warner Brothers lawyers actually said to uh, – the, the Disney lawyers, you know what? We'll chip in a couple of million to the settlement. It'll be worth it to not go to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Okay. This is a roundabout way of introducing Jack Kirby, you know. So Jack Kirby, his fam Jack Kirby died in 1994 at the age of 77. Now, Paul McCartney is still rocking out at 77. Yeah. But when I met Jack Kirby at the San Diego Comic Convention the summer before he died, the summer of 93, he looked like a frail, broken man. Poor guy. Why? Now remember, he dies in 1994, before the age of all the Marvel movies, but he still lived through seeing Stan Lee gain the national and international prominence that he was the creator of the Marvel Comics characters, that he was the creator of the foundation stories that Jack Kirby, quote, wrote as silent movies on paper. And that broke him, in my opinion, because I met him in 1975 when he was younger and he was vibrant. But by, 19, by 1993, when he was 77, like I said, he looked like one step away from the grave, and he was. Meanwhile, Stan Lee lived another 25 years, 
yeah. parading around in those Marvel movies like the Emperor with no clothes to us on Team Kirby. So, that this has been your quick education, and not it only sure has. To run, but so my webinar next week. When Kirby did leave Marvel Comics in 1970, after he had created the Marvel Comics universe, which beat DC by the end of the decade, single-handedly practically, he leaves Marvel. It was the equivalent of the Beatles breaking up in 1970. When Kirby left Marvel to go to rival DC Comics, you know, it it, it was the equivalent of the Beatles breaking up, pop culture-wise. You follow me? Yes. That was the year Simon and Garfunkel broke. It was the end of the 60s. It was the new decade. You know, everything was ending and new things were beginning. So what does Kirby do after creating the Marvel Universe? He goes to rival DC Comics and gives them the ideas he was holding back from Marvel in the late 60s because Stan Lee was taking all the credit. So he bides his time because he had a family to support. He moves to California for health reasons in 69, and he creates a series of four interconnected comic book titles that were dubbed the Fourth World. And it was this new concept in comics of four different characters and different titles, but that were all interrelated in a larger, grander story. This was something that had never been done before in comics. Kirby had hinted at that while he was at Marvel, but he really did it full bore when he was at DC Comics in the early 70s. Like so many great things ahead of their time, they didn't sell well. Everybody was expecting Marvel Part Two. Just like after Bruce did Born to Run, they thought Darkness in the Edge of Town was going to be Born to Run Part 2. And people forget the initial reviews of Darkness in the Edge of Town were negative because critics were expecting another wall of sound, bombastic album from Bruce. And he totally flipped them around. After he did the double album The River with Hungry Heart, what does he do? He turns around and gives the world Nebraska his solo masterpiece acoustic album, which, by the way, is considered the foundation album of what's called the alt-country movement. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. Now you know that. Now I know, you know that. Trevor Noah on The Daily Show, I don't know if you watch that, <laughs> he's got this great segment that he calls, I love him. I love that yeah, kid. <laughs> but you, you know that segment that he does? He call, it's called, If You Didn't Know... Now you know. <laughs> now you know. <laughs> now you know. So, well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you. That. I'm glad but, you watched him because he's a okay. he's a cool, smart kid. I love really. I love Trevor Noah. He's great. I love um, him. But but here's the thing. So so, um, in the spirit of those kind of things, you know, after Ridley Scott, you know, did did Blade Runner, you know, he turns around and does this movie um, with Tom Cruise called Legend. In 1985, um, and it bombed. And and he was Ridley Scott, the guy that did Alien and Blade Runner. So creative artists, after big successes, sometimes end up doing these projects that totally fail. But some of those failures were ahead of their time. Mm -hmm. So here we are 50 years later. 
Do you know the the black female director Ava DuVernay? Have you ever heard uh, of her? Yes, yes, have. Okay. Do you know she has been selected to direct the big Warner Brothers um, major motion picture on the New Gods, which were the concept that Kirby created when he went to DC Comics? Remember the four titles? One was called the yes. New Gods. One was called The Forever People. One was called Mr. Miracle. And the fourth title was actually an existing DC Comics title, Jimmy Olsen, Superman's pal. But Kirby took it and turned it into a Jack Kirby phantasmagorical adventure that happened to be with Jimmy Olsen and Superman. But, um, But those were the four books. But the new gods were the kind of main title that all the other books kind of circled around. Here we are 50 years later, and Ava DuVernay has been selected to direct the big budget major motion picture called The New Gods, based on Kirby's concepts. So even though... wonderful. Even though... And here's the thing. When they asked her, how did you get the... Like... Like... How is it you're directing New Gods? Yeah. You know, you got to remember, she's the first woman to be selected to direct. I mean, after Patty Jenkins, whatever her name is, who did Wonder Woman. But Wonder Woman is only one character. To give the New Gods, which is a group concept with a plethora of characters, to a, a woman director and a woman director of color is groundbreaking. And they asked her, who is your favorite comic character? And she goes, a female Amazon-like character called Big Barda. That was one of the new gods that Kirby created. Big Barda was like like an – you know the way Amazons really were? Like they were tall, big women, not fat, but they were big. They They were very big. Muscular. Well, Kirby created this new gods character called Big Barda that is just everybody's favorite female character that Kirby ever created. And he created a lot of great characters, mostly male. But his greatest female character is Big Barda. And all of Kirby's characters are white, except with the, he also created the Black Panther, by the way, that nobody realizes – you know, nice Jewish boy, Jack Kirby, real name Yaakov Kurtzberg, <laughs> creates the greatest black superhero icon, which is a metaphor for the black involvement in the civil, the Jewish involvement in the civil rights movement. There would have been no right, civil rights right. movement without Jewish, both philosophical and philanthropical assistance. And in the middle That's of right. the civil rights movement, Yaakov Kurtzberg creates the Black Panther. Of course, Stanley took all the credit. So Lehman thinks Stanley created the Black Panther. Nope. It was Jack Kirby. So I've done a whole webinar on the Black Panther. I did it recently, um, a couple of weeks ago for New York Adventure Club. Um, and by the way, I think if you go to nyadventureclub.com or write them an email, I think info at nyadventureclub.com, you can see recordings. Uh, you know, it's only like $10, and you get access to the recording of the webinar for, I think, up to a week. 
So even next week, if you can't make my webinar live, if you buy a $10 ticket, it allows you access to a recording of the webinar um, for up to a week. And, you know, if you think about it, when you watch a webinar, even if you watch it later, it's like a podcast. It feels live in the moment when you're watching the recording. Yeah, it's wonderful. Except yeah. for the chat board. The chat board is, of course, live. You know, when yeah. you watch recording, you know, there's no chat board, but um, it's the next best thing. So a lot of people think, oh, I can't. I won't buy a ticket to the webinar because I can't make it. I'm working or I'm, I'll be out that night. Well, buy a ticket and then you can watch it for a week. So I'm always stressing to people um, that just you know, go that's ahead and do it. About it's New worth York it. Adventure Club. Yeah. And, and it's only $10. Believe me, uh, I'd be doing these for free because they're just great opportunities, but it's nice that I can make, you know, little, a little coin, a so little I'm, bit. I'm, we I'm, all need I'm, every little bit helps. Well, this is what I'm saying. You know, people go, Arlen, do you have multiple income streams? I'm like, multiple income streams? I'm working on one income stream, <laughs> multiple income streams. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm talking to well, a freelance. <laughs> By the way, my nightlight radio show, also on Block Talk Radio Network, like we are tonight. That's right. Um, I, I, I've, I've been doing those since the end of August. And if you do Blog Talk Radio and then you do a search for night with a hyphen light, night light, you'll find me. But I've been able to schedule a two-hour radio show like the day before or a couple days before I do these webinars so that I can have a guest on who's an expert in the subject matter and we can talk about it and promote the webinar. So my James Bond webinars that I just did, I had the writer of the James Bond movie encyclopedia that I met through a third party. He came on and we talked about Bond. Next Wednesday on Nightlight uh, Radio, blogtalkradio.com. Again, if you go to my blog page, you'll find the information for it. But I'll be talking to a guy named Mark Evanier, who was Jack Kirby's assistant at the time he was doing The New Gods 50 years ago. And he's an established comic writer in Hollywood, in L.A., Mark Evanier. Uh, but I've known him for years because he's a great comic story, and he's working on the definitive biography of Kirby. And he'll be my guest next Wednesday, the 28th, at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, on Blog Talk Radio for two hours talking about Kirby and the new gods because he was actually there when Kirby was creating these very ahead of their time concepts you know one of the concepts kirby has the characters holding what looks like an iphone kirby called it a mother box but it was essentially an iphone created 50 years ago by jack kirby he also in the new god yeah he also um the new gods was being you know even though it didn't sell well just like the Velvet Underground and Rock and Roll, Lou Reed's group in the 60s, they didn't sell really I any remember. albums. But critics have said, but everybody that bought a Velvet Underground's album ended up starting a band. Well, yeah, works that are ahead of their time are like that. You know, they might not be loved by the masses, but the people that get into them, it ends up being very influential. It may not have earned money for the creator at the time, but that's the way art works sometimes. And um, 
if you look at Star Wars that came out in 77, George Lucas was working in a comic book store in San Francisco in the early 70s. And so many of the concepts in Star Wars you can find in Kirby's New Gods. In Star Wars, you've got the Force. Well, in the New Gods universe, Kirby creates something called the Source, which is a similar mystical kind of thing like the Force. Yeah. Star Wars has Darth Vader, and Darth Vader is the villain who ends up being the father, spoiler alert, of Luke Skywalker. Well, in the New Gods, Kirby's got the hero Orion, whose father is Darkseid, and Darkseid is basically the visual model for Darth Vader. Darkseid, Darth Vader. Yes. And then it turns out that Darkseid's son is the good guy, Orion. So it's the same principle that Lucas must have totally, either consciously or subconsciously or unconsciously, basically did his own riff on, which is what artists do. Everybody steals and kind of turns it into their own thing. Um, and the word, you know, there's a fine line between homage and ripoff. You know what I mean, Char? There's a yeah. fine line. Um, yeah. The point is, is that Kirby's New Gods and the Fourth World books that I'll be doing my webinar on next week, it's now the 50th anniversary. Literally this time of year is when Kirby debuted his post-Marvel Comics works, which were ahead of their time, but they were of their time. You know, he based Darkseid mm-hmm. on Richard Nixon. He hated Nixon. Sheesh. You know, and Darkseid, yeah. he based on Nixon. So so great art, Char, is both of its time and timeless. The Twilight Zone, coming out in the early 60s, spoke to its time, but is also timeless. All great art. You could look at Guernica by Picasso. And not know yeah. anything about War. what it was originally based on, the bomb, bombing yeah. of the Spanish town of Guernica, yeah. the smithereens by the German Luftwaffe aiding you know, the, the um, dictator Franco. Without knowing that, a child could look at Guernica today and feel something from it that might make them feel what Picasso wanted people to feel back in 1937 when he painted it. Yes, yeah, so and that is the mark and of there was great misery. Art. Yeah. Right. But my point is great art is both of its time and timeless. That's why they say we can only judge it with the test of time. Well, here we are 60 years after the twilight zone, 50 years after you know, Kirby's New Gods, and in a sense, all the people that said, oh, Kirby's best work was his Marvel stuff, you know, the New Gods never sold, it was discontinued after two years, you know, who cares? Well, you know, we we have the last laugh, because, you know, two years from now, when, when Ava DuVernay's New Gods come out, you're going to hear the name Jack Kirby, you're going to finally know yeah. who Jack, and 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 laymen and other comic book fans who have all drank the Stan Lee Kool-Aid will finally learn who Jack Kirby is because I guarantee you Warner Brothers is going to pull out the stops. And by the way, 
not to be outdone, Marvel Comics, owned by Disney, when they heard that they're going to make New Gods into a movie, which is a total DC product, no family involvement, obviously, they're making a movie out of a concept Kirby gave to Marvel. You ready for this? Remember I said he left Marvel, went to DC yeah. in the early 70s, stays with DC, gives them the fourth world. They discontinue after two years. He stays another three years till 1975. He leaves DC and goes back to Marvel for five years from 75 to 80. Marvel 2.0. And during that time, he creates a concept for Marvel that they own called the Eternals. And the Eternals are kind of like Kirby taking the new gods concept and just kind of mutating it a little. Because, you know, great artists do that. You know, they have themes that they're playing with. And at one point in their life, they do it in one venue. And then 10 years later, they take some of those ideas and do it in another venue. Well, that's what Kirby did. The Eternals is not anywhere historically by conflict historians considered anywhere on the same level as the new gods. And yet here we are 50 years later, uh, Disney is making an Eternals movie to compete with the new gods movie. And it's going to be a big budget multi cast, you know, characters. But so imagine Jack Kirby, who dies in 1994 at 77, seeing his creations taken away from him. All he wanted to do was provide for his family. You know, whether there's an afterlife or not, Jack Kirby didn't live to, to, to get the rewards of that multi-million dollar settlement. He died feeling he had failed his family. He died feeling that he had been ripped off. And that's what I mean when I say he died a broken man. Yeah. All we can do is honor his memory and hope there's an afterlife that somewhere he's up there smiling where he's saying, hey, I'm finally mm-hmm. being respected. I'm finally being honored. So imagine well, two that's, years that's, from that. Yeah. That's what's wonderful because you have um, educated us. You've right. brought his name to light. You're... Uh, it just reminded me. I want to say one more. T- and I'm still doing. You've my done part. your when part, you, and you're still yeah. you are. And when you, it's I mean, a good listen, thing. I, my part is like a little dent, you know, in the in the machine. The Stanley, the in, in Star Wars terms, the Stanley Lemmings, as I call them, outnumber us, uh, the Kirby Commandos, like the clones outnumber the Jedi Knights. Okay. You understand that analogy? Yes. So yes. it's an uphill battle. It's Sisyphean. And yet, in the same way I fought for Bill Finger's memory and did many projects and articles to promote Finger's name, you know, every now and then the good guys win. Every now and then, just to give you hope, that evil doesn't always win. That's, a, that's uh, Even though it that's often seems that way. You I was know? thinking. Yeah, I was thinking about this because we are dealing with some um, imagery 
actually you could even bring up the old uh, stories of the Greek myths and the Greek gods because that's a, I, I also was interested in that as a kid because my mom's Greek and you know, my grandparents are from Greece. So, uh, you know, I was interested Perfect. in the Greek myths, but I can see yeah. how how this this even – I know that he's happy on the other side because well, I just finished reading a book that said sometimes we choose a certain path, but, we're, but this isn't the only time it's going to happen because we have, like, reincarnation and all sorts. I'm just starting to, to – to maybe believe that because I've never known any, I don't know if reincarnation is real or not, but when you think that our energy never really dies, you know, that to respect and bring up people's names with respect is a big Greek thing. Cause if you say a person's name, it's giving that person honor. Well, this gets into the realm of things that are unknowable this is what mankind has been struggling with and asking these questions. One might say all of religion is all about trying to give answers to those unanswerable, unknowable questions. You know, there's this Twilight Zone episode that I love that I show to a lot of newbies to introduce them to the concept. It was called Five Characters in Search of an Exit. And it's literally about five characters, a ballet dancer, a hobo. No, I remember them. And they're all trapped in this white circular space, very abstract. They don't know who they are. They don't know how they got there. They can't get out. They don't know what to do. They feel like they've been there forever. And as you can see, it's this really incredible 25-minute metaphor for our life on Earth. We're, all, we're three billion characters in search of an exit. And one of the characters, he's an army general. He's the alpha male that wants to get out. You know, All the others are content to just accept their fate. But he's the alpha male. He's the army general. We've got to get out of here. And at one point, he goes, where are we? What are we? Who are we? And I always think to myself when I watch that episode and when I lecture about it, those are the three questions mankind has been asking of itself since we've had the ability to ask questions. Where are we? Meaning, how did we get here? What are we doing in the universe? What are we? And meaning, what are we to do as human beings? And who are we? What is our real identity? Are we souls in this body? And, you know, all the theories. Those are the three great questions, along with why do bad things happen to good people? You know, then you have Mm -hmm. your additional questions, right? But essentially, those are the three most asked questions of life on Earth. And we, mankind has spent its existence trying to come up with answers. But it's like to use the parallel with UFOs. As much research as there is, as much of what we think of as the evidence we have, the bottom line is we still don't know for sure. 
And you can have all the theories and feelings and experiences you never you know want. for sure. You never even okay. know what you're looking at. Well, so the you're point not... the point I'm the point I'm trying to make is in in lieu of that, what are we to do? I choose to just try to do good work, try to mm-hmm. be productive, try to create a little love, try to spread love, try to do all the good things because here's Here's what I've come from as a as a Jewish boy. I, I'm not a good Jew. I don't know. I know my Jewish history, and I know my Christ. I've experienced the whole sort of Christian side, and I, I've read the, the the New Testament more than I've read the Old Testament. But here's what I find interesting, because you know when you want to ask, like when I asked the Christians when I when I came to Christ, and I asked my fellow Christians, let me get this straight. Are you telling me that my mother, who was killed by a drunk driver in 2006 at the Sorry. age of 85, but she always looked like 20 years younger? Yeah. She had all of her. And you're telling me that my mother, who was a widow, my father died when I was four months old, Char. She raised my brother and I herself without any help from any of the relatives. And she didn't remarry till I was 17. And my mother, I get my gift of gab from her. My mother was a natural conversationalist. But more important than that, she was pure love from my perspective. We felt loved as kids, my brother yeah, and I. Lovely. My yes. mother, I called her the human light bulb. My whole personality, my joie de vivre comes from my mother. Now, I never knew my father. He was a face in a photograph. I'm sure I have some of his qualities, too. But because my mother raised me, and I, w- I love my mother, and, and she, when I say she was the human light bulb, literally when she would come into a room, she lit it up. I know it sounds cliche, but she was it. She lived it. Now, my mother wasn't religious at all. She was barely, you know, she, she was Jewish, but my mother didn't have Jewish upbringing. She was a typical American Jew. That, you know, didn't have any real religion. My mother never talked about believing in God or anything like that. My mother lived purely in the moment, which is what all the philosophies, even Christ himself says, we need to, the only pure existence, even the the Zen masters, is the now, not the past and not Mm -hmm. the future. My mother, without knowing Zen from Shmen, lived life like that. And I didn't know that as a kid. I reflect on that now as an adult, trying to look at my mother as a human being and as a person. But here's the most important thing. And this gets back to the whole why are we here and what do we do while we're here. Is that when I asked my Christian brethren, I go, so let me get this straight. So my mother, the human light bulb, pure love, was a loving everybody, and her name was Lucy. Everybody loved Lucy. The term I love Lucy was never more truer than with my mother, Lucy. And she lived in the moment, but yet was a-religious. Are you there? I'm listening intently. I'm hearing a beeping. Oh, oh I think somebody's trying to call me, but I'm going to let that yeah. go. That's my call waiting. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, we can't hear it. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. I can hear it on my end. Um, it was just a little distracting. So I asked my Christian brethren, I goes, let me get this straight. According to your theology, 
My mother, who was pure love, she died. And you're telling me because she didn't come to Christ that she is somewhere in some nether region and some hell. My mother, the human light bulb, that was pure love. And, of course, they didn't have an answer for me. What? Well, yeah, I, I know the answer. She's pure what? love. God is love. Okay, but again, I'm going to just use the Christian, the pure Christian theology is, no, if you don't come to Christ, sorry. That's it. Especially, and you're a Jew? Sorry. Sorry, Jews. You know, we love you, <laughs> but... Uh, See, that's why don't you... If you don't come why, to Christ... Yeah. Well, that's why okay, I, so, I... But, you ready for this little revelation? Pun intended. Tell me. Okay, this is going to blow your mind a little bit, I think. So that always bothered me. I said, you know, I, I can't reconcile that. Well, a couple of years ago, I don't know if you remember this story in the news, but the Pope, uh, you know, Francis. Um, mm-hmm. I remember. Like an eight, he, he was greeted, whether it was an official Vatican visit or something, or he was on the street, whatever the situation was. An eight-year-old boy came up to him. And by the way, I think he was Greek. Maybe he was visiting Greece. I don't know. Whatever it was, an eight-year-old boy came up to him with tears in his eyes. And the boy said to the Pope, and you know, this is with the press. You know, everybody's looking. It wasn't like a private meeting. This is public. And the boy had tears in his eyes because his father had just died of like a heart attack or something. And the boy was in tears because he said to the Pope, Pope, even though I'm Catholic, my father didn't believe in God, you know, like either he was a lapsed Catholic or whatever. And he died not believing in God. Is he in hell? Now, this is a public event. What do you, what do you think the Pope told that kid? I think the Pope was and, generous. And, and, and the reason why I'm giving you this leading question you know, Your Honor, you know, mm-hmm. Arlen is leading the witness. Yeah. The reason why I'm giving <laughs> the same question is, is I'm going to tell you first the reaction on the Internet from strict Catholic. When they heard what the Pope told them, they said, that Pope, he didn't tell the kid the truth. Yeah, sorry, kid. Your father's going to hell. You know, of course the Pope wasn't going to tell an eight-year-old kid that. But you know what the Pope told the kid that upset uh, hardline Catholics, he told the kid, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember his exact words, but he basically said to the kid, your father was a nice man. For him to turn out a son like you that would have the feeling and the soul to come to me with tears expressing in other words the kid was coming to the pope to kind of absolve his father yeah yes and the pope said francis god bless this guy pun intended but for him to say to this kid even if he believed in his heart like these hardline catholics but i see i don't think pope is like that but because if you notice he's recently said a lot of things like you know yeah he just said something we we are all children of god Mm -hmm. in other words the hardline Christians and Catholics are unhappy with this pope, you know, because they feel he's too liberal. He's not 
orthodox enough. And they feel the critics of this little interaction with the eight-year-old were like, Pope, you're the, you're the head of the Catholic Church. This was your chance to tell the world, if you don't believe in Christ, you're going to hell. Which is what they believe. But here's the thing I discovered in their own book, in the New Testament. Are you ready for this revelation? Yes. And, you know, pun intended, because the final book in the New Testament is, of course, called Revelation, right? Yes. Do you know your New Testament? Yes, I am actually do a Bible study on Sundays, and I'm in Revelation 3. We did the whole New Testament. Okay. Well, guess what? I'm about to blow your mind a little bit, I think. Or maybe not. But it blew I my hear mind it. when I read this. When I read this. And I think it's in Revelation Maybe it's elsewhere, but I think it's in Revelation. When you die and you go before the great judge and you know Christ is at his right hand and God is there to to finally judge right at the end of the age, according to Revelation, we all go before the great judge, right? Yes. And what are we judged on? And it's, let me think how many words. We are judged on four words. What are those four words? What are we judged on? And put it this way. Are we judged on whether we believed, are we judged on whether we believed in Christ or not? Answer the question. Yes or no. According to Revelation, on what? Four words. Are the words, did you believe in Christ? Did you believe? That's five words. (laughs) Obviously, are we judged on whether we believed in Christ or not? Answer the question. You're on the witness stand, Char. (laughs) It's a yes or no question. I don't know what you're going to say. I'm asking you. You have to say it. I'm asking you, what are we judged well, the, on our deeds are, and all our deeds are going to be in the the, the book. Okay, okay, the okay. Book you're, of you're, life. You're, okay, okay, okay. You're, you're, I'm a little you're, you're too spoiling, literal. You're spoiling, so. you're spoiling my big, uh, my big revelation. I know. That's why I want you to say all it. It's, uh, okay, I set this whole story up because most people believe you're judged on whether you believed in Christ or not. Right? Not according yes, to the book of I'm, not a, not according to the book of Revelation. All it says is you will be put before the great throne of judgment, where you will be judged based on. Remember, I said four words. Mm-hmm. Based on what you have done. That is According it, to your deeds. But think about exactly. it. Four words. It says, a, it says according what to your deeds. you have done. Okay. Yes. You know in Christian theology, starting from the get-go, there was a big debate on, is it faith by works or faith by faith alone? Martin Luther's famous Reformation was based on 
Faith alone. Faith in Christ alone is all you need to get into the kingdom of heaven. That's it. Pure belief. But going back to the earliest books of the New Testament, I believe the letter of James, who is called James the Just, who is one of Christ's brothers, who didn't believe in Christ while he was alive, but after he died became one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church, which, of course, he was killed along with all the other Jews in 70 A.D. James, in his letter, writes about faith without deeds is dead. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works or deed, whatever the translation, is dead. And yet, 1,500 years later, Martin Luther reforms the church by claiming, sorry, faith alone, that's all you need. Well, and if you and if you look at the state of the world since 1500, um, when he wrote that, you know that's the get out of jail free card. Look at the end of The Godfather, the first film, when he's yeah. in the church getting his kid baptized on one half of the screen, and what's happening on the other half of the screen? Murder. At the end of The Godfather, remember? Yeah. Murder, so right? That to me is Coppola's and Puzo's statement on Christianity in a nutshell, post Martin Luther. Yeah, that's those, I, I. You really hit on something. Is is why I I finally have to say that I'm a Christian mystic because I have had a direct, uh, I have had direct experiences. Let's put it that way. So I know. This stuff is true, but I know God well, is above, and I know we have no control over others. You know, I can't oh, blame them or, or whatever their chosen Christianity is, but they don't have to beat people over the head with it, you know, and well, there's a harsh tone. Of course. We, listen, yeah. we could spend, obviously, a whole show about this, but... I want I to bring this. I, I want to bring this back to my mother, because if indeed, according to Revelation, we are judged in the end on what we have done. Listen, we have all sinned. We are all going to go before the great judge with two piles: one exactly. pile of our sins and our mistakes and our bad things. And then there's going to be a pile that you hope is going to be bigger than that pile of your good things. And that's what you're going to be judged on. You think anybody other than Jesus himself is going to go up before God with with no sins? (laughs) I'm sure my mother sinned. I never saw her sin. She seemed pretty sinless to me. She's a good person, but but my she, point you is, know, but the thing is, right, is that, my, uh, so this, this is what is I'm point. realizing. Yeah, we are going to be judged based on what we have done. You think when Bill Clinton goes before the great judge, his affair with Monica Lewinsky is going to outweigh all the good things he did? No, mm, no. 
No. I'm embarrassed by what he did. You know what I mean? Because Does it matter? He, he kind of shot himself in the foot with that. You know. Listen, don't get but, listen. That gets into a whole other stuff. My point is, is that all we can hope in our life is that we did more good than bad. That yes, our exactly. Good, in the end, based on that one revelation sentence, we are going to be judged by what we have done. Yes. So I guarantee you, when I go before the great judge, he's going to say, "Okay, Arlen." You know, nice to finally meet you in you the flesh. You did good, Arlen. Now, Arlen, I'm first going to go over the negative shit. Okay, <laughs> let's get that out of the way. Well, that would be a life review. <laughs> it's not a lot. It's not a little. There's some significant things in there. So let's just get them out of the way first. You know, you had three abortions yeah. with your first wife. You did this, you did that, you know, you made fun of your brother's acne when you were a kid. Uh, you know, I'm trying to think of all the, you know, the, the sins in my life, you know what I mean? You know, you did this, you did all that. Of this you did have, the other. All of us have done it, and I, right, you know, right. I, I, I... But then, I, but then the great judge is going to say, okay, Arlen, lift yourself up off the floor. I yeah. know you feel terrible about those things that I just had to enunciate. But now, Arlen, it's time for the good stuff. I love you, man. Look at what you did over here, and look at what you did there, and look at how your lecture brought somebody to tears. I remember that moment, man, where you brought yeah. a grown man to tears. Wow. I was no. there for that, Arlen. Man, that alone gets you in, you know, because I'm going to be judged like you are, Shar, on what I've done and I know in my heart, you know, did you ever read the book of Job? Yes. Okay. What is I read Job Carl about? Jung's answer Job to Job. Job was a righteous man, but he was not sinless, but he was a righteous man. He knew he was a yeah. good man. And that's why he was angry with God. He never cursed God. Remember, the whole game with the devil was when human beings, when things are going good, they love you. When things are going bad, they hate you. And they'll abandon you when things are bad. Yeah. And God said, screw you, devil. You see that guy Job over there? He's a righteous man. He won't curse me. Go ahead. Do everything you want to him. Just don't kill him. And he reduces Job. He murders his family. He's got all these children. Testament. They all get killed. He murders his wives. Takes he away his, on a his wealthy body. man. Right. Reduces him literally to a pile of ashes, boils covering his body from head to toe. And his three friends come up to him to counsel him while he's sitting there in ashes mourning. And he can't believe, like, I was a righteous man. What, what did I do? To, and all his three friends all take turns basically telling him that he brought this on himself. Like most people, when bad things happen, it must have been something I'd done. And all three friends are telling him, you must have sinned for all this shit to happen to you, right? Do you remember the story of Job? Yeah, of course I do. I studied it. Okay. Well, so I'm saying, Carl Jung you know, wrote remember a, what wrote his friends, they all, they all counsel him for pages on essentially, yeah. you know, 
you've sinned against God, and that's why you're being punished. But Job argues with them and says, I'm not sinless, but what did I do to deserve this? I didn't do anything. I was a good man. I had a family. I was successful. I, I helped the needy. I helped, you know, the downtrodden. I was a, a, a community man. You know, he was Job. Anyway, what happens at the end of Job? Do you remember? Yes. Yeah, you say yes, but I don't know if you remember. He lost you remember? everything. Well, he lost that was in the everything. beginning. What happens at However, the end of Job? What happens at the he end of He regained everything triple times over. He overcame. Tenfold, but yeah, but okay, but but here's the crux of the story. After the three friends counsel him, Job finally lets out his anger. Again, he doesn't curse God, but he's angry with God because he can't understand why, why all this has happened to him. Mm-hmm. Because he feels he was a righteous man. And this is essentially Job is the story of when bad things happen to good people. It's one of the essential questions after where are we, what are we, and who are we, right? Yes. So finally at the end of Job, God finally appears to answer Job. He comes out of the clouds, his booming voice, and there's Job and his three friends. And do you remember how God answers Job? Tell me. It's a little unfair. I'm testing you, but uh, I can see. You okay, keep so testing to... me. I know, but you know, you know, you're not. Uh, you got to study back up on well, your. Uh, on because your I'm waiting to hear it. The story. Okay. 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 So, for about six pages, God answers Job, and how does He answer him? He basically, for six pages, starts telling Job. Do you have any idea what it's like to be me? Do you have any idea what it's like to create the heavens or the planets or the earth or the waters or the birds or the this? For six pages, God is basically proclaiming his godhood to Job. He doesn't at all address Job's specific complaints about his life. All he says to Job is, basically, who F are you, a tiny little insignificant man, to even have the nerve to question me, God, the God who created the universe. My ways are unknowable. My paths are unsearchable. Who are you, a mere man whose life is but a shadow, to even question, to even ask me why I'm doing what I'm doing? And then what does he do? Joe basically answers him, you know, God, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> you're the great, you're the great you can God. see the point. I'm, you're the great I'm, I am. I'm just a schmuck. I get it. I'm sorry, God, for like bothering. So what does God do? He goes, hey, Job, here's what I want you to do. You see those three idiot friends of yours that gave you this horrible advice about how you deserve what you got? By the way, God never tells Job 
that he was using him as a pawn in a game with the devil. He never tells Job that. No. All he says to Job after he basically dresses him down for even asking God to explain himself. But then he says to Job, I want you to say a prayer for your three idiot friends and make a sacrifice for them. And that's all he tells Job. Job makes the sacrifice for his friends, basically forgives his friends. And then all it says in the end is that God then rewarded Job tenfold. And that's how the Job story ends. Well, it's a good thing because uh, it gives everybody hope. You know, that's that. that And what is that hope? Okay, so so what is the meaning of Job? And by the way, philosophers have been debating why was Job written by these anonymous Jewish sages, whoever wrote Job. There's nobody knows who the author of Job was. It's not like it's named after a prophet. It's the story of Job. But nobody knows who wrote Job. Mm -mm. But we can only assume you know, sometime in B.C. and, you know, you know, somewhere between, I don't know, 600 and 1,000 B.C., the story of Job was written. And why was it even written? And what is the, what is the, the lesson? What are we to learn from Job? It can happen to any, to anybody. Crap happens. It gets back. Okay, well, it's not necessarily that. Remember I said it's the answer to when bad things happen to good people. Yes. It's the answer to any tragedy. When when life is going in other words, it comes back to when I was with my Christian brethren, I'll never forget they told me the story of this one guy in their church that, you know, he had been a religious Christian his whole life and then at the end of his life, like he had a stroke or something. And all he kept saying was, What did I do to deserve this? I was such a good man. I was a good Christian. I went to church every Sunday, blah, 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 blah. Why do I have a stroke? Isn't it interesting that even the most devout Christians, when times are good, it's, oh, thank God, thank God. But the minute the SHIT hits the fan, we immediately revert to this more Old Testament, you know, uh, my sins Mm -hmm. have brought on. You know, because in the Old Testament, they do say that usually disease is a, is a response from God to your sins. You're, you're paying for your sins by uh, being bedridden with some disease. That was the explanation. So, you know, the Old Testament did have until the story of Job. Mm-hmm. The story of Job is basically why even question God? Sometimes bad things happen to good people, and that's it. That's it. And in the it face is, of that, unknowable, and this gets back to, your, you know, when you brought up, well, you know, I'm into this and I'm studying this and I'm reincarnation and whether it's blah, 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 da, 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 whatever. All of that stuff, all of those questions, where are we, what are we, who are we, they're all unknowable. We try to yeah. get answers. We think we sort of have the answers. But in the end, since we are only judged by what we have done, I think all we can do in the face of all those unknowable things is just to get up every day and do good and be productive and create love. 
And that's all we can do because every now and then bad things are going to happen to good people. And you can question God all you want and you can blame yourself for bringing it on. But that's going to get you nowhere. Mm -hmm. That's what God was basically telling Job. You're wasting your time questioning why this shit happened to you. I'm not even going to tell you it happened to you because I'm playing a game with you with the devil. He didn't even give Job the least bit of solace. The explanation. He gave Job nothing except who the F are you to even question me. So that is the Jewish sage who wrote Job basically telling the ancient people when life was really hard. Hey, folks, life is tough. God exists, but you know what? He's busy creating the universe every day. And, and, you know, (laughs) don't waste your time. If bad things happen to you, just keep going. And when good things happen to you, and when good things happen to you, just enjoy them. And that's it. That's it. You know, they asked Albert Einstein, the, the most asked question he had in his career, he said, was, do you believe in God? Everybody wanted to know, does the great Albert Einstein believe in God? And you know what his answer to them was, Shar? And I read this on the internet recently. He said, I believe in the God of Spinoza. Baruch Spinoza was a Jewish philosopher who was even excommunicated for Judaism because of his um, anti, he didn't believe in God or anything. But he believed in the God of the everyday, and I'm paraphrasing from Einstein, but he believed in the God that's on this conversation right now between us, Shar. He mm-hmm. believed in the God of the sunset, in the God that brings joy, that brings love, that people interact. And these are the things that Einstein tried to enumerate. I believe in the God of Spinoza, in the God that creates that Guernica painting that makes us feel something, you know? Yeah. And that's what that I'm, and I'm probably totally mangling what Einstein said. Well, no, there's what, just a, what there's a beauty. But it comes there's back a beauty to, in this, but it all comes back to the, what you have done aspect, meaning. Yeah. Why waste time trying to figure out who are we, what are we, where are we? Why not spend the time actively loving, actively creating, actively doing good? That's what I try to do. Yeah, I'm always interested in the big questions, and I read Job, and I ponder, and I'm introspective and all that. But in the end, I get itchy when I'm not being creative. I get itchy when I'm not being productive. I want to feel like every day I've done something to advance my work, myself, my love, my effort to love without any expectation of getting loved in return. And that's a key thing. Yeah, that's the whole point. And that's what you have done. I'll have a clear conscience, I think, unless I totally screw up the rest of my life. Um, I think I'll have a clear conscience if the Revelation story is true, that we will be judged by what we have done, if we're judged at all. And by the way, let's take the atheist point of view. Let's say this is all there is. 
We have one life, we die, and then we go into this black void, and that's it. And maybe that truth is too hard for people to accept because it puts the onus now on you to live your life to the fullest like every cliche tells us we should. If you live in the yeah. moment, you are living life to the fullest. And then you can die with no regret saying, you know, I may not have visited every country. I may not have, you know, read every book. But hey, excuse me. But hey, I had a great <clears throat> I had a great life. I did a lot of good things. You know, I made mistakes, I did some bad things, but hey, I didn't waste my time. I enjoyed well, life were... as much as I could to the fullest. And I think in the end that's all we can do. And yeah. everything else is just um I don't want to say a waste of time, but everything else compared to the actively loving, the faith without works is dead aspect. My mother, if there is a God and there is a heaven, when she came before the great judge, Lucy, what have you done? The first thing she would have said was, I raised two beautiful boys, Arlen and Steve, my older brother. And you know what? God would have said, Lucy, you're in. That's it. Like, that was plenty. <laughs> Anyway, and that's what I think the Pope was trying to tell that kid. That your father had to be a good man, a loving man, for him to turn out a son with, with your empathy. I think it's, it's wonderful, and thanks for telling us that, because we need the, the reminders, especially since we're all still hiding out and people are in straits yeah. um, financially. There's so much stuff going on, but, you know, oh, we're going to yeah. raise above it to the next time. You know, yeah. this is, we are in the time of plague right now and yeah. uh, it's pretty ridiculous, but, you know, yeah. just, just try to stay safe, everybody. And, uh, yeah. you know, uh, we needed this inspiration tonight. And I want to thank you, Arlen, so much for being such a splendid guest. We, you know, we barely artist. talked about my and, work and my and career. We're you know. walking. We're we're just talking about everything. We have to do this again <laughs> and bring it up. We'll bring I'm up saying, all the I stuff we. I can't believe. I'm looking at my watch. I can't believe. I'm glad we got the Kirby plug in at least to come to my webinar next week. Exactly, <laughs> and. You can read, reach, uh, watch his radio show at www.blogtalkradio.com slash night dash Right, that's light. next Wednesday night at 8 with Mark Evanier, Kirby's assistant. That'll be a great discussion. And that's Wednesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Blog Talk Radio. The very next night at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Thursday the 29th, New York Adventure Club. I'll be doing my... 50th anniversary of Jack Kirby's New Gods webinar. And then I've got and other webinars can... after that on The Twilight Zone, on Bruce Springsteen, on the one on comics, but you'll be able to get all that information at the N1, excuse me, adventureclub.site.com site, as well as my uh, arlentrumor.com blog page. So, And I'm on Facebook and, and Instagram, and I don't hide behind pseudonyms, uh, pseudonyms. Everything I do is Arlen Schumer. So whether it's Instagram, Tumblr, Facebook, you can always find me just by uh, my name. 
and you can find your books as I found them on Amazon. Silver Age of Comic Book Art um, is in print. You can get that directly from me through my website, or I have my own SilverAgeOfComicBookArt.com site where people can get a signed and sketched in by me a hardcover copy um, of that book uh, versus going to Amazon. You know, when you go to Amazon, yeah, you get it cheaper, but the authors don't make any money on Amazon. Amazon makes all the money oh. because of that discount. But, you know, okay. you, you have to be on Amazon for the exposure. But if you yeah. want to really support your local freelance artist, buy the book directly from me. And like I said, you'll get it personalized. And trust me, uh, it's only the greatest book about comic book art history ever. And uh, double your money back if not satisfied. Well, that's true. And it's the first book licensed to reproduce the classic imagery and words of the popular television series as in illustrated format. You're the first. It was the first book as its kind. You're talking about my Twilight Zone book or my Silver Age book? Yes. I think it's the I think it's the uh, my Twilight, Twilight Zone book, which is out of print, but you can still get the out of print on Amazon. It's called Visions from the Twilight Zone, and that is the only coffee table art book about the legendary TV series, in which I treat the black and white television images like black and white art photography, and I treat the dialogue and narration. I typeset it to read like spoken word poetry. Nice. And the only TV show you can do that with is The Twilight Zone. And wow. I'd like to think that book was a little ahead of its time because that book yes. came out in 1990, pre-internet, pre-everything. Amazing. And here we are 30 years later, and The Twilight Zone has a new TV series on CBS All Access, uh, creatively directed by Jordan Peele, finished the second season. There are more websites now devoted to discussing the Twilight Zone than ever before. And I'm like the son well, Rod Sterling never had. If you look at my Twilight Zone works, well, yeah. you'll see. And but I'll be doing a webinar. Strangely enough, just to, my just aunt. Let me end. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sure. Let me my... end by just plugging when you go to nyadventureclub.com, my upcoming webinars after Kirby on the 29th. On Friday the 6th, I'll be doing my Bruce Springsteen live retrospective, which is me curating the best films and videos of his live performances that exist. And the early performances especially are super rare that even most Bruce fans have never seen. Then on the week after, on November 10th, which is a Tuesday night, I'll be doing my Twilight Zone webinar that I've done before for New York Adventure Club called Twilight Zone Ahead of Its Time, which is all about the episodes that, even though they were 60 years ago, were eerily prescient in terms of discussing the themes of isolation, loneliness, solitude, to what we're going through this past year. So I put together a webinar that shows clips of these episodes framed in this idea that Serling was a visionary. And remember, art is of its time and timeless. But the reason why I chose Tuesday, November 10th, is because that happens to be the exact 60th anniversary of the greatest episode of The Twilight Zone, I believe, is the famous episode with the pig faces called Eye of the Beholder. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Which is also in its way about isolation because if you remember that episode, she's considered so ugly that if this 11th operation doesn't work to make her beautiful, they're going to quarantine her with people of her own kind. Yes. And this is 1960 at the dawn of the civil rights movement. So in addition to the regular webinar, Twilight Zone Have It's Time, I'm going to screen at exactly 10 o'clock. I start the webinar at 8. But the main body of the webinar will be over by 10, and then right at 10 o'clock on the exact 60th anniversary, even though in 1960 it was a Friday night, November 10th is the exact 10 p.m., 60th anniversary of that episode debuting. So I'm going to screen that episode at the end of the webinar in its entirety. And then my last webinar scheduled for the year is the week after, November 19th, which is a Thursday. And that'll be the 50th anniversary of one of the greatest comic book series of all time called Green Lantern, Green Arrow, which was illustrated by one of the great realistic artists, Neil Adams, my, another one of my childhood idols who I ended up working for when I got out of art school. And you did. His name is Neil Adams, my greatest influence. But I was a, of a generation influenced by Neil Adams. He's 80 year, he'll oh. be 80 years old next year. He's still uh, productive still and kicking. still going strong. But what he did 50 years ago with his green – there would be no – remember that Arrow television series that just ended? Yes. Yeah. There would be no Arrow television series, and they're making a big-budget Green Lantern movie or television series or something that was just announced. There'd be no interest in Green Lantern or Green Arrow if it wasn't for what Neil Adams did 50 years ago. So in a similar way, I'll be honoring the 50th anniversary of Kirby's New Gods. I'll be doing that with the Green Lantern, Green Arrow uh, webinar on November 19th. And again, I'll be doing a nightlight radio show before each webinar with experts in that subject, like Mark Evanier next week coming on to talk with me about Kirby. So, Shar, I think that brings wow. us to the end to, of uh, our episode. Yes. I'll let you wrap I, up. I just uh, feel, you know, that uh, I've been schooled tonight. I want to thank you for that. Where do you get my really... bill? Where do you get my Yay. bill? You think, this was all, you think this was all free? You Man, this was worked. You worked me. But I, I'm I've, saying, I've where do you lot get my and... bill? I know. Oh, God. Okay, I'll give you my address. Send me the bill. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'll Arlen, give you my God PayPal bless address. you. I'll give you my God PayPal address. Okay. Anyway, thanks for giving me this opportunity to Wax poetic ad nauseum on the things no, that I, I love. I enjoy it. It's really uh, you're well, just an incredible man, and I want to thank you. I am very much so, and uh, you are an inspiration. And uh, God bless you and everything you do, and keep up the good work, young man. Well, thank you, Char. And listen, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoy this. Um, Anytime you want to have me back on or anytime you want to reach out to me for anything, let me know. Um, Wonderful. I stay loyal to the people that have helped me. So the fact that, you know, you've had me as a guest, I will always um, cherish. So thank you for this opportunity. Me too. Me talk too. About I'll see you. things that most people don't get to talk about. Yeah. Hopefully people that's, that's listening the whole point. in 
Remember, you will be judged by what you have done. So be good out there and exactly. vote. Exactly. Actively and love. Vote. And by, yeah, and, and by the way, yeah, vote blue, please. Please vote Don't get me blue. started on that subject. He who shall not I be I know. I, I held my tongue this whole time to the bitter end. But I please get out the vote. Say, listen, I hope to be able to say the famous words on November 4th. Our long national nightmare is over. It's over. This has been Remember the cruelest, who said that? horrible. Remember Ooh. who I'm quoting? No. Remember who said that first? No. Oh, who Sean, said it? you're really failing the test. Tang, I know all these tests when tonight. When Gerald Ford pardoned Nixon after Watergate, oh, poor guy he said, our crook. long national nightmare is over. Jeez, well, let's let's let us pray. I'm just saying that's <laughs> how I want to end on a good note. That I hope the next time we talk, it'll be morning in America, and I mean M O R N, not M O U R N. Yay! You like that? Yes, I do. Okay, Char, so. great talking to you. All right, be good. Touch. Take care. Okay, I will. Bye bye. Okay, thank you so much. Bye bye. Well, I want to thank. Arlen Schumer, award-winning illustrator and pop culture commentator, and he really taught us a lot tonight. I am just amazed. My my head is so full of new information, and uh, please check him out. And uh, now I'm going to play a little thing from my friend Ray Cordell. He has a new album out, and he had it made a little jingle just for us. And so let's close with a little word from... Uh, Ray Cordell, and then I'm going to play his uh, one of his new records. I think you're going to like it. So here's here's a word from Ray. Hi, this is Ray Cordell, and I'd like to invite you to check out my new album, The Long Road, which is out on Friday, the 20th of November, 2020. Now, it's a compilation album, a best of, if you like, and it features 18 original tracks written by myself over the years. So, if you'd like a copy, it's out everywhere from that date on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, YouTube Music, Spotify, everywhere. Or there's also a limited number of CDs available. If you'd like a CD, a signed CD maybe, you can message me via Ray Cordell Music on Facebook or via this page. So, get in contact, and I hope you enjoy it. In the meantime, keep on rocking. Cheers. Okay, as we close out our wonderful evening, I want to thank Arlen's humor once again for uh, a wonderful talk. I really appreciate it. And uh, let's see here. Ray Cordell, One Life. Good night, everybody. God bless you. I'm allergic, but I just can't let you go. Because the feelings that I have for you were planted. From the moment that I saw your beauty shining 
Don't fake it. 